0: If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. We have been looking the past few Sundays at what the passage that contains what we know as the Lord's Prayer, in which Jesus teaches us how to pray. But I think equally important, he teaches us to whom it is that we are praying. As I said last week, the prayer can be seen as being made up of five parts. You have the address, our Father in heaven. Then the ascription where we ascribe to God, hallowed be your name. Then there are general petitions. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then specific petitions. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We spend more time on the address than we will on the rest, because this is the critical issue. As I've argued, everybody prays, but not everyone prays to God. When we pray to our Father in heaven, we are doing three things. First of all, we are claiming that God is our Father. Not by right, not by nature, but because he adopted us and he has been gracious. At the same time, we also remember the distance between us. He is our Father in heaven. He is transcendent. He isn't our buddy. You know, he isn't our pal. He is our Father in heaven. And then thirdly, we acknowledge that Jesus is God the Son because you can't have God the Father if you do not have God the Son. Then we look at the ascription, hallowed be your name. Uh, Hallowed means to make holy or to honor as holy. And when we say, hallowed be your name, it is an acknowledgement of God's character. It is, in fact, ascribing to God the, the honor and holiness that is due him. But you could also make the case that, rather than making this ascription, we should put it in with the general petitions, that this is a petition as well. The reality is, God's name is holy. Okay? Even when people mistreat his name and treat it with less than respect, it is still holy. Even when we do not pray, hallowed be your name, it is still holy. I've mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago, that I see this as the positive stating of the third commandment. The third commandment is you shall not misuse or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Here it is to hallow God's name. We are to live this truth out in our life. We aren't simply not to take his name in vain. That's the negative. The positive is that we are to hallow or honor his name. By giving him the highest place in our thoughts. That when we speak his name we do so with the highest reverence. When we love his person. When we praise and worship him. When we obey him. We are honoring his name. We are giving or saying that his name, in fact, is holy. Mentioned this last Sunday, that there are three ways that we can take this, Um, and this is based on grammar. Either we can say it is simply a statement of fact, that God's name is holy. Or it is subjunctive, it is, in fact, a statement of desire. May your name be holy. Or it can be a command, the imperative, make your name hallowed. I think we usually speak as though it is a fact, indicative, or perhaps more likely we want it as a wish. We wish that your name would be treated with respect. But when Jesus gives us this prayer, it is in fact in the form of a command. And again, I mentioned this last week, who are we to command God to do anything? Well if you remember prayer is a dialogue. We don't begin the conversation. God began the conversation. And if you read in Genesis chapter 1, God said, God began the conversation. We respond in prayer. So God tells us that his name is to be honored, that it is holy. And we respond by saying, yes, make it so. You've said this is the way it is, and we are agreeing with him, and we say, make it so. And how does he make it so? It is to be in our living. We'll come back to this later on. But I think many people, well, I wonder. I don't want to make a statement here. But I wonder if people like the Lord's Prayer because they feel that it puts all the burden on God. You do this. I'm going to pray this and you do this. When in fact the prayer is God has already said he's going to do these things and we respond and we tell him, do this, make it true in our lives. That in our living, we would honor his name. The general petitions are, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reality is that God is king. Okay? We find this throughout the Old Testament. The Psalms tell us again and again that God is king. Let me just mention a few verses. Psalm 47. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. In Psalm 24. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. And then in Psalm 29, the Lord is enthroned as king forever. The idea is that God rules over all. He is the creator. He is the king of all things. But particularly, he is the king in the lives of his people. Those who know, oh, there is a God in heaven, and we acknowledge him as our ruler so when we come to the passage in 1 Samuel, chapter 8, which I think is critical, the Israelites come to Samuel, who is the judge, and they say, Listen, we want a king. We want to be like all the other, the other countries have kings. We don't have kings. And Samuel is really troubled by this. He goes to God in prayer, in prayer, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected But they have rejected me as their king. In other words, Israel is like, we want a king. They already have a king. What in essence happens is a coup. They throw God out as king, and they get Saul instead. When the New Testament opens, John the Baptist and then Jesus of Nazareth preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, meaning that God is king, and it is where he rules. That is the heart of the gospel. And it leads us to the next petition. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God is king, then his will is to be done. I wonder about this particular petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because I think most people see it almost as, I'm going to sit here and your will be done. I'm going to be passive, I'm just going to sit here, and this is what I want, but... You know, God you do what you want to do remember that these are imperatives all of these petitions are imperatives and people say okay well that's even better because now I'm telling God God Father your will be done as though we have no part in it whatsoever and then when you talk about God's will I mean it's almost the shrug of the shoulders you know whatever God's will you know whatever God wants to do the will of God is used in two ways in Scripture. One is the secret will of God, which we do not know. The other is the revealed will of God, which we do know, in which God tells us how we are to live. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's not secret. That's not hidden. That is the will of God. And what this means is, if we pray, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, We are committing ourselves to be a part of that. We want God's name to be honored in our lives. We want him to be our king. And we are his subjects. And we want his will to be done. We want to obey him in our lives. We show reverence for God's person and his name. We submit to his authority. And we obey his will. One author has noted you have know, three things here that it matches the triad that we find in Paul of faith, hope, and love. We pray for faith when we pray that his name would be hallowed. We pray for hope when we pray your kingdom come. And we pray for love when we pray your will be done. Now we come to the next part of the prayer. Here these are the general or the specific petitions. Immediately, immediately, This is so familiar to us, you may not have seen it, but immediately we notice that there's a difference. In the first section, all the pronouns are second person. Your kingdom come, your will be done, hallowed be your name. In the second part, it's all first person. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Here we deal with personal needs. And I would argue that it is great that we pray the first part of the prayer, but we are also to pray the second part. I actually don't think that's a problem. I think most people pray the second part a lot more than they do the first part. But they are both to be parts of our prayers. The specific petitions can be put into three categories. The first is physical needs. Give us today our daily bread. Again, it's so familiar to us, but we need to be reminded that we are physical beings. We have bodies. This is the way that God made us. And we need to eat to be sustained. I mention this because some of the early church fathers, they thought that this, was, this wasn't right, that we should pray about something as, as common, as mundane as bread, particularly after your kingdom, your will, and then our bread. I mean, it's like we've fallen off a cliff and we've fallen into a chasm. And so some of the early church fathers would say, well, this is actually talking about the Lord's uh, Supper or it's talking about, but it can't be talking about something so mundane. They were wrong. We are human beings. We have bodies. This is the way God made us. And it's been this way since God created Adam and Eve. And he put him in a garden where he, there were trees that were good for food. Even before Adam and Eve sinned, they ate, okay? They had to eat. It's part of what it means to be human. Uh, We shouldn't sort of look down our noses on it. The physical part is very much a part of redemption, beginning with Noah and his family being uh, sustained through the flood, the blessings that are promised to Abraham, and then you have the exodus. Where Israel is brought out of slavery. Physically, out of physical slavery, they are brought out. And then God makes a covenant with him. And it is interesting that in this covenant, we find, among other things, these words. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's like, wait a minute, Damon, I thought you said bread was important. It is. But I think what is being said is that our daily bread is not, we cannot say, that belongs to me. That is, I'm owed my daily bread. But it is, in fact, a gift of grace. It's been the universal practice of God's people through the centuries that before they eat, before they have a meal, they pray. And in many places, that prayer is referred to as grace. As in, do you want to say grace before the meal? Again, it's so common we've forgotten. When we say that, we're acknowledging that food is a gift from God. A gift of grace from the Creator. Our daily bread is a reminder that we are completely dependent upon God. Apart from Him, we would not be able to continue Why bread? Well, the people that Jesus was talking to in the first century, bread was their staple. And when he said, give us today our daily bread, I think it really resonated with them for two reasons. First of all, the majority of people that were listening to Jesus were what we would call day laborers. Um, They would work, and at the end of the day, they would get money. And usually what they would earn would be enough for one day's food. So they didn't have savings account. Uh, They didn't have disability insurance or social security. Whatever they got that day, that's what fed them. They were day laborers. And so the idea of daily bread, yeah, they got that. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. But there's another reason why I think it resonated, and that's because of what happened to Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember? God brought them out, a great exodus, a great deliverance. (laughs) And then they didn't have any food. So they grumbled to Moses. Moses prays to God. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. The Israelites were to collect enough bread for that day. It was literally their daily bread, manna. That's what God provided for them. If they collected too much, it rotted. But on the sixth day, they were to collect enough for the sixth, and then the Sabbath day, the next day, and it didn't rot. And then the next, the first day of the week, they would collect again. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord your God has given you to eat. It is, if you wish, your daily bread. So, the words of Jesus made sense to the people listening to him in the first century, but what about us? We who think in terms of pension plans, or annuities, savings, credit cards. Well, think a moment. Bread or food costs money, money requires work, work requires good governance, God, can't have chaos, it requires business, and so much more. So, if we pray to God for our daily bread. We should. But when we pray to God for our daily bread, we are at the same time asking him with regard to money, jobs, government, business, labor, weather, transportation systems, peace in society, and health. One writer said that this is the social, political or socio-economic petition in the Lord's Prayer, that God would provide us a peaceful nation and good health and the ability to get to work, that we might be able to earn our daily bread. Everything that is necessary for just production, just distribution, just purchase and consumption of our daily bread. But I think there's another issue that comes into play. We are not farmers. Uh, for the most part, we're not agrarian as a people. We, we do industry or now technology. And so... We don't think in terms of daily bread, because most of us, when we get paid, we don't get paid every day. We either get paid weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly, not daily. And then when it comes to buying groceries, buying your food, um, you could go to the grocery store every day, but I think most people don't do that. They go once a week. Um, and then when you pay your bills, if you have a mortgage, if you have car payment, other bills... You don't usually pay them every day. You pay them monthly. As a result, I think our perception of time has been altered. So should we change, if we were going to update the Lord's Prayer, should we change this instead of give us today our daily bread to give us what we need? Would that be a better way to pray? No. We don't change the prayer. We change the way that we think. The petition points to the fact that Every single day we are dependent upon God. Every day we are to pray, give us today our daily bread. I would argue that the next two petitions in which we ask God uh, to forgive us our sins and to lead us not into temptation, these are things we don't pray daily, but moment by moment that we look to God to take care of us couple more things and then I'll move on. Based on the Lord's Prayer, should a Christian work? Because after all, we're saying to God, in the form of a command, give us today our daily bread. Yes, we are to work because we are made in the image of God who is always at work. As human beings, we have a calling, and the calling is, in fact, that we are to work. You will remember with the Israelites, with the manna, They had to go out and work and collect the bread, the manna. They didn't just sort of lay on the ground with their mouths open and the bread would fall into their mouths. They actually had to go out and work. It was a gift from God, no question about it. All that we have is a gift from God, our life, our breath, our jobs, our skills, our health, our strength, but we are to work. And when we get our paycheck, do we say, look at what I earn"? I earned or do we say thank you for giving me my daily bread another question is should we share what we have with others you will notice that the pronouns in this petition are plural give us today our daily bread I think that in enabling us in God giving us our daily bread he enables us to share it with others it isn't something that we are to keep to ourselves just one more thing, back to the physical. You know, here we are physically in this building. And we have been singing, we've been listening, as people have read from Scripture, and we have eaten and we have had something to drink. The physical is and very, very much a part of what it means to be human. And so we should pray, give us today our daily bread. The second specific petition is the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. One writer has put it this way: the lack of specific reference to the grounds of forgiveness has allowed this petition, along with the rest of the prayer, to be used in secularized contexts to signify some groundless forgiveness of sins open to all. In other words, it's sort of an ollie-olly income-free. Yeah, just forgive everything. Forgive everyone, every sin they've ever committed. The background to the old the background to this prayer from the Old Testament is an emphasis on sacrifices, and the foreground in the New Testament is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For sins to be forgiven, somebody's got to pay. Okay, I think we very glibly oftentimes say, forgive us our sins, and we forget that, yes, in fact, God can forgive our sins, but it costs something. It is not free. The forgiveness of sins, the paying of the debt, requires payment. Um, In Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, which I'm convinced was given on another occasion, Jesus says forgive us our sins and here we have forgive us our debts. Why the difference? What is the difference? Well, this is just a supposition on my part, but Matthew was more familiar with Aramaic. And in Aramaic, the word for sins was the word debts. Luke, on the other hand, was more familiar with Greek, what the New Testament was written in. Aramaic is what Jesus spoke when he taught. Greek is what the New Testament was written in. And so... He used the word sin there, knowing that debt in Aramaic meant sin uh, in Greek. Jesus is speaking of the forgiveness of sins. We have a debt. Whenever we commit a sin, it puts us in the red. It puts us in the hole. We owe God obedience, and we did not give it. We were supposed to honor His name; we did not. Okay, we were supposed to obey Him, and we did not. As a result, we are in debt to him. What is needed is for the debt to be forgiven. And you just don't get a pen and mark it out. Somebody's got to pay what you owe. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. I think if we could all at this moment, from now on, never sin again, we still could not pay what in fact we owe for our sins in the past. But forgiveness is available to us. We read it today in the promise of forgiveness from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us he's taken our sins away as a father has compassion on his children so the lord has compassion on those who fear him for he knows how we are formed he remembers that we are dust or physical or human and then in Psalm 32, the wonderful words, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we should not be surprised that we can go to God and say, Forgive us our debts. It's a command. It's imperative. Well, Who am I to tell the God of the universe that he should forgive me? Well, no. I'm simply repeating back to God what he has said to us that through his son we have forgiveness and what we are saying is make it so that's what you said should happen or will happen and that's what should happen the second part of this request seems to trouble people in which it seems that God forgives us only if we forgive others does God forgive me because I've forgiven others It's a good question, and it's not one that we should just just believe and take it by faith. Something we should really take seriously. Jesus told the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, a servant who was forgiven an immense amount, who then turns around and refuses to forgive a fellow servant a not insignificant amount of money. Jesus ends the parable by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So the question remains, uh, is my forgiveness from God dependent on my forgiving others? I don't think so. But let let me start, say something before I say that. Our forgiving other people is not an inconsequential matter. I think oftentimes we treat it as such oftentimes because I'm not sure that we forgive people. That if someone does something to, to hurt us, they do something against us, and we're like, yeah, okay, that's okay, don't worry about it. I, I don't think that's forgiveness. I think forgiveness is looking the person in the eye and say, you hurt me, but I forgive you. You did something wrong against me, but I forgive you. To, so to forgive someone is not an inconsequential matter. But again, remember... In prayer, the initiative begins with God, and God is the one who tells us that he forgives us, and then we, in turn, forgive others because we have been forgiven. The third specific pet- uh, petition is deliverance, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. The question we might ask here is, what is the nature of temptation? The primary sense in which Jesus uses it here is that of a test, um, Not of seduction as such. I think we almost see temptation and seduction as synonyms. And that's not how Jesus intends it at all. What we find in scripture is that there are always going to be tests that try to get us away from trusting God. We're to trust God. And temptation, as Jesus uses it here, sort of pressures us to say, no, don't trust God. And by the way... um, Jesus experienced this when he was in the wilderness. The temptation the test is to trust in yourself because this is what makes sense to you rather than trusting in God, specifically God the Father. So when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan is saying to him, doesn't the Father know you haven't eaten? Apparently he doesn't know or he doesn't care, so turn these stones into bread on your own. The second is Let's see if the Father is really watching over you and has angels on standby. Throw yourself off the temple. And lastly, Satan says, Trust me rather than trusting your Father. Worship me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. I think in the Lord's Prayer, this final petition acknowledges that apart from the grace of God, we can't keep going on. One foot in front of the other, not going to happen. It is only because of the grace of God that we can. Why should we pray this? Because he has promised to do so. He has promised to give us the grace that we need. We need to pray that he would, in fact, give us that grace to overcome unto the end. When you look at testing in scripture, you find it beginning in chapter 3 of Genesis, with Adam and Eve in the garden, And you find it all the way through Scripture. And what we find, by the way, is time after time after time, God's people fail the test. The Bible is a record of the failure of God's people. Who are we to imagine we won't fail? I don't need to pray this because I can handle it on my own. The reality is, if we are part of God's people, then we are like our brothers and sisters. We need the grace of God. Otherwise, otherwise, we will fail as they have done. By the way, in case you are wondering, you will fail. We're human. We sin. Okay. But we are to look to God for grace in the face of evil, that he would help us in the time of testing, that we would not trust in ourselves, but trust in him. And then finally is the doxology, which in the NIV has it as a footnote. I'm convinced it's to be a part of the prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Doxology comes from the word in Greek meaning glory. It is used to refer to the praise for God. We sing the doxology at the end of our worship. It is an acknowledgement of his glory. Interestingly enough, it's at the end of the prayer, but it is the foundation of the prayer. Because if you think about it, if the kingdom, if the power, and if the glory do not belong to God, then we're wasting our time praying. (laughs) Why are we bothering to pray? Let's find somebody else who does have the glory, if you wish, who does have the kingdom, who does have the power. But at the end of the prayer, Jesus tells us, Yeah, you can pray to the Father in heaven with confidence because he has the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And then finally, the last word that we should not take for granted, the word amen. It's a word we find in the Old Testament as a word of affirmation. Or it is to agree with someone in prayer. It can be translated as so be it. Jesus has prayed this prayer and the amen says yes, this is right. We agree with this. The prayer is not a mere wish. It fits with what we've been seeing about prayer. That God begins the conversation and we respond to him repeating back to him what he has said to us. In the Lord's prayer, we should have a sense of wonder at how gracious he has been to us. He allows us to call him father. He whose name is hallowed. He who has brought us into his kingdom and by his will has saved us. He who provides every day, moment by moment what we need and so much more. He who has forgiven us. He who without his grace we would not be able, we would not be able to continue apart from him. And he who has the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We should be filled with awe and wonder that this is who we pray to, and we have been given this privilege. And as James puts it, may we not be hearers only, the word, but may we be doers as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is amazing that you hear us. Oftentimes, when we pray, particularly in difficult times, we imagine that we are telling you things you don't know. We feel perhaps like a child tugging on the coat or the skirt of a parent, trying to get your attention. When the reality is, you've been talking to us all along. And you call us to respond, to talk to you in prayer. It is, I think, because of our own self-centeredness, our lack of trust in you, that prayer does not come as easily to us as perhaps it should sort of rude not to speak back to someone when they've begun talking to you. But we get tired, we get bored. And we imagine that we are the center of the conversation, that we initiated things. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has told us all about you. And even in teaching us how to pray, he teaches us even more about you. By your grace, may we be people of prayer. May we trust you. We pray for Dave and his family this time of loss, that you would comfort them. May they have a sense of your presence with them. Thank you for bringing us together. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.